As we pick it back up, our text will be Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21 and going through verse 34. As we begin our time, if you would stand with me out of reverence to the word of God, and begin our time by reading, once again, the teachings of Christ found in Mark 4. There we find these words. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would become to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. He did not speak anything to them without a parable, but was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. This is the word of God. Please be seated. There were, as many of you know, 400 years of complete silence from God between the Old Testament and New Testament. 400 years of nothing. No revelation, no new teaching, and most importantly for the Jews, no Messiah, no Savior. For 400 years, the Jewish people went on, reading their Old Testament scriptures or reading those promises, eagerly anticipating the coming Messiah. For much of that time, they lived under the harsh rule of a godless people, specifically speaking, the Roman Empire, as we find in the Gospels. And for 400 years, they were given nothing. And then suddenly, with the beginning of the Gospels, you have this magnificent proclamation of of peace on earth, goodwill to all men, because the Messiah is here. Jesus is born. Early in his ministry, or immediately from his ministry, that same language of proclamation is picked up, as we've seen from Mark, where Jesus comes on the scene, and he proclaims, the kingdom of God is here. All of your hopes fulfilled, all those promises fulfilled. I am the one you've been waiting for. And you can only imagine the excitement that would have come with such proclamation. We see that excitement over over authoritative preaching in synagogues. We saw that excitement in, in miraculous signs where God is able to do whatever he chooses. Again, showing indeed the kingdom of God has been here. And we can again only imagine just how amazing that must have been to see. And yet, as exciting as it was, it would also have been, no doubt, incredibly confusing. For these disciples and these followers were were told the, the long time of waiting was over. 
Our Messiah is here. He himself is proclaiming the kingdom of God is present. And yet, as of this point in time in Mark 4, let's face it, not a lot has changed. And despite declaring the presence of the kingdom, the Roman Empire still is standing. The Jews still sit under a godless pagan rule. Uh, on top of that, you still have Pharisees. You have uh, the religious leaders that have lost their way, and, and they're still ruling and leading in a way that is dishonoring to God, in a way that has forgotten all the teachings. And so in a sense, as, as exciting as the ministry of Christ would have been, it also would have left many people wanting more, for Jesus isn't seemingly doing anything. To make matters worse, in Mark 4, you have Jesus doing things that, that seem to go directly against his earlier proclamation. For not only is Jesus not performing miracles here, he's teaching. And how is he teaching? Parables. He's getting up in front of crowds, and instead of proclaiming the kingdom, he's saying things like, a farmer goes out and throws some seed on a field. And some of that seed grows up, some of it dies. The end. There's, there's nothing exciting there for most people. He gets up in this passage, as we already read, and he talks again about the kingdom being like a man who casts seed in the soil, and the seed grows up by itself. The end. He says, what's the kingdom of like? It's, it's like a mustard seed that starts out nothing, but grows up to be great. The end. Explanation given only to disciples, explanation given only to a few. But for the most part, if you're hearing these messages, they appear to be utter nonsense. Certainly nothing all that powerful. Certainly nothing all that, that new. And so the question stands, where is the kingdom, Jesus? What are you doing, Jesus? Where is this long-awaited fulfillment that you yourself declared was present? And while we perhaps cannot fully understand that level of confusion and frustration, we no doubt experience the same level of frustration today and confusion, for we know certain promises to be true. We know that God is glorious. We know that he works out everything to the good of those who love him. And yet, look around us. Are we really living in the kingdom? Are things really that much better now, honestly? I mean, our nation's come through a, a wicked week in news. As most of you heard, yesterday, 11 people, 11 Jewish people, shot dead in a synagogue in their time of worship by some maniac. Earlier this week, you have two people shot dead in a Kroger by similarly ridiculous belief system that, that drove the killer there. You have bombing threats earlier in this week. We live in a nation that seems increasingly divided, increasingly violent, increasingly chaotic. And as easy as it is to gather together for church on Sunday morning and, and come together and smile and, and sing songs of praise, as we leave these walls, let's face it, it's hard to sometimes really believe the kingdom of God is here. Where's all that peace that was declared with the birth of Christ? Where's, where's that rule of God that, that we know is supposedly happening? Where is the kingdom? And in light of that question, what on earth are we supposed to do with these strange teachings of Christ that appear so cryptic, appear so basic? As big of a question as this is, thankfully... As we come to Mark 4, we see Jesus does not leave it all as one grand mystery. As we will see, the, the mystery, that which is hidden in these passages, was itself a strategy of Christ. And as confusing 
as it would have been to the disciples of that time, and as confusing as it still might be to us today, there are precious, precious truths hidden in these passages. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we are able to understand them today, and even in the midst of our own ongoing chaos, we, tr- we too can hopefully walk away from a passage like this this morning, not asking where the kingdom is, but confidently assuring everyone around us know that the kingdom is here. Confidently moving forward in great anticipation, knowing that the Christ is the king, the kingdom has been initiated, and the kingdom is still yet to come. As we do this, we will see the point of parables once again, and we will learn two valuable lessons regarding that kingdom that seems so hidden. Before we dig in, though, let us pray for the Spirit's blessing upon our time so that he might allow us to understand these difficult texts. Pray with me. Father in heaven, We come before you and we immediately acknowledge that we live in the midst of a hurting and seemingly chaotic world. God, we see the horrific headlines nearly every day, it seems, of more violence, of further division, of further chaos. And God, at times it is easy as we hear of these headlines and see chaos in our own lives to to become a bit doubtful and a bit cynical of the promises that Christ himself gives us. Like the disciples, we too perhaps can hear words like, the kingdom of God is here, and and not in agreement, but in our hearts, question the reality, question just how true and how precious that is. And so, Father, as we come to this text this morning, God, we pray that you lay our hearts bare. God, we pray that you might cause us to see the precious truths hidden here. Holy Spirit, We thank you for enlightening us to see these truths so frequently, and we pray that this morning might not be any exception to that, but might you continue to reveal the truth of the word to us. We praise you and we thank you that we live on this side of the cross where we can see so much more fulfillment of the promises, even more so that the disciples understood in Mark 4. And God, as we read these words in light of all that fulfillment, might we ultimately walk away not confused, but all the more confident in the presence and future of that glorious kingdom. And might our lives be daily impacted by it. We praise you, God, and we love you. Bless our time this morning. We pray, remove all distractions from our minds, God. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen. As we begin our time this morning, in verses 21 through 25, we are picking up a text that that falls right on the heels of the parable of the sower. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Eric walk us through that familiar text. And most importantly, we're coming on the heels of of the explanation given of this parable. For as we saw last week, even the disciples did not understand what Jesus was doing. They perhaps were more confused by anyone else as to why Jesus would speak in such cryptic, hidden manners. And in part, it's in reference to that explanation, it's in reference to that, that mystery, that we see the first lesson repeated to us in verses 21 through 25 that speaks more broadly than just to the kingdom, but but speaks particularly to how we ought to pursue and approach something like the parables. And similar to what Jesus revealed last week earlier in Mark 4, we see it again, as confusing as these parables are, they do serve a purpose. And that purpose, in essence, is just to cause us who are the true children of God to listen carefully and seek out understanding. Speaking to that promise, let's again see the words of Jesus in verse 21 through 25. There we read, and he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed, is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? 
For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you besides. Forever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. As Mark provides yet another explanation of the parables, he offers these words of Jesus that ultimately, I believe, are meant to be a, a message of comfort and encouragement to those of us who, who are true children of God, true disciples. For in essence, what Jesus is telling his disciples here is, as mysterious as things might seem, as, as confusing as these teachings might seem, it's not always going to be that way. For as he is saying here, the, the lamp, the light from a lamp is never intended to be brought out for the purpose of keeping it hidden. No, it's always ultimately for the purpose of putting it on a lampstand. This language that Jesus is using here is once again a reference to the truth of the kingdom that he is presenting throughout the parables. In the Old Testament, this idea of a lamp is picked up a number of times to symbolize, to represent a, a moment of revelation, a moment of truth. At times, it's also used to, to symbolize an actual person. For instance, the King David in Old Testament is called the Lamp of Israel. And in a somewhat similar use here in Mark 4, Jesus is saying of himself, of his message, that this light, this great revelation, while being hidden at this moment, is not always going to remain hidden. It is for the purpose of revealing truth. It will eventually be made more public be made to where you can understand it a bit more. And at, at its heart, the message of Jesus here then is, is quite simple. First of all, he's referencing and acknowledging the obscurity of his teaching. At times, it's easy to read of Jesus' response and, and think he's being impatient with his disciples and speaking as if they should already understand these truths, but it's not the case here. In verse 21 and 22, he's acknowledging that the truth is partially hidden from these disciples. There's good reason why they don't fully understand this message, much less this strategy. It very much would go against building up a large crowd or, or gaining a great following. Jesus is saying, is, as confusing as that is, you can take comfort, as he says in verse 24, and the fact that as you take care to what you listen to, and as you are careful to listen to it, you are promised that whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from them. The promise here is simple. It's, it's a promise of further understanding. Jesus is telling his disciples, just as he had, had repeated earlier in chapter 4 when he says to you the secrets of the kingdom have been given, he's telling them again, you do understand this in part, and you will understand this in full eventually. It just takes time. The encouragement in the midst of this message is quite simple, and he repeats it a few times here. It's that encouragement to still listen closely. Pay attention to what you hear, disciples. Pay very careful attention to everything that I'm saying, for as you do this, as you pay attention, further understanding will be given to you. We see this promise fulfilled ultimately in the, the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes this a bit more clear over later on in another text when he speaks of the fact that the Holy Spirit will reveal truths for them. You can read of that in John 16. 
And you see that further understanding exemplified and proven in these lives of the disciples. For as clueless as they appear now, and they do look pretty clueless throughout the Gospels, remember, these are the same disciples that, that will appear in the book of Acts loudly proclaiming truth in ways that, that leave their critics astonished in a similar way that Jesus' own teachings leave his critics astonished. And so as such, we benefit from the fact that we know what happens to the disciples. We know that Jesus' words prove to be true, that the disciples stick alongside Jesus, and that he does, in fact, bless them ultimately through the Holy Spirit, who brings them understanding. And so we can easily testify to the reality of, of the importance here of, of paying careful attention to what has been given to us. For as cryptic as these teachings might seem in passing, much like how confusing certain passages in scripture might remain to us we are promised as christians that we are not called to live a life in this constant haze of confusion that's not the life of a believer no we can be confident that, that by the grace of god and by the holy spirit who indwells us that we too can understand this but that does not excuse us from from studying it does not allow us to become lazy we too like the disciples must take this understanding take this encouragement seriously and respond similarly understanding that by the holy spirit we too can understand these truths we must simply listen carefully and as we do we are promised that more of that understanding will be given having said that it is important of course to note the other effect of these parables for just as jesus had said earlier in mark 4 when he quoted isaiah chapter 6 he again says that this is not the case for everyone he can says that, that while this is true for you, for those unbelievers, this understanding is not promised. Again, verse 25, whoever has to him more shall be given. Whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Again, we see this, this double effect of parabolic teaching. We see this double effect of ministry where both, both people in the audience, the unbeliever and the believer, hear the same message. The believer is promised eventually this leads to more understanding. You see God in the midst of it. You understand these deep truths. The unbeliever, however, is hardened. And the things of God become increasingly confusing, increasingly dumbfounding. And, and so while they hear the same thing, they are not promised the same result. The difference is, is the one who has ears to hear. The difference is the one in whom the Holy Spirit is at work. And so while his parables might be confusing to the disciples, and even to us today... We take comfort in the fact that understanding is promised. We as believers have this, this deeper level of understanding of Scripture. So we too, like the disciples, even in the midst of confusion, ought to take comfort in that, but also ought to take seriously our own roles as students. This is why theology really is truly important in the life of the believer. That's why studying the Word of God is important, so that we can understand it more, grow in our faith, grow in our confidence. As we study, we will grow by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, this is difficult, but I assure you, more will be given to you. More understanding will be offered. And we'll see that in effect later on in the passage. Having said that, however, even in the midst of being promised understanding, the fact was the disciples didn't have that understanding yet. And you can imagine them thinking, okay, Jesus, I appreciate that encouragement, and hopefully I'll understand it someday. But here and now, can we get back to the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? That is something none of us seem to understand whatsoever in the moment. And so please, Jesus, enlighten us. Explain to us where this kingdom actually is. 
And ultimately, it's in reference to that type of question that we have the remaining verses in our text. And in these verses, we have two simple and yet extremely complex, extremely deep messages regarding this kingdom. These messages speak to both its presence and its future. And as believers, it's essential that we understand both those present and future aspects. We begin with the present aspect of the kingdom in verses 26 through 29, where we're told the kingdom is growing. It is here. We just must be patient. Picking up that message in verse 26, we read these words. And he, Jesus, was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Here in these verses, Jesus again returns to a message of the kingdom, specifically the present stage of the kingdom. And as he does, he returns to language that sounds somewhat familiar to the language in the parable of the sower, that which, again, we covered last week. For again, Jesus uses imagery of a seed, he uses imagery of a soil, and and the end result of that seed sprouting up from the soil. And yet, as, as familiar as this language is, we see his focus is slightly different. And it's in that difference that the key to understanding this parable is found. For as you just saw, the, the focus here, unlike the one of the sower, is not so much on the different types of soil, nor is it on any external circumstances. And in the parable of the sower, you have different types of soil in which the seed falls, you have the heat of the sun, you have birds of prey, you have all these other things at work. But in this parable, things are much more straightforward, much more simple, much more confident and certain. For in this context, in this story, the seed is placed in only one type of soil. And with no detail given of outside forces, we are told that this one seed in this one soil inevitably grows up by itself, and ultimately it results in this great harvest, in this great crop that the farmer is ultimately able to partake in. The question, of course, is what does this mean? What, what points do we learn about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in this text? I think there's three basic points here. The first two would have perhaps been the easiest two for the people of God to already acknowledge, and I believe the easiest for us to still believe today. The first point, taken from the fact that the farmer does nothing, is the biblical theme, the biblical understanding that the kingdom of God is not up to man. The the success of God's kingdom, the conversion of an individual, the the reign of God does not depend on whether or not you and I are, are successful. It doesn't. In this picture, the farmer sows the seed, the farmer does his work, but after that, the farmer does nothing. That's not to say the farmer is being criticized for being lazy here. That's not the point. The idea here is simply that the seed and the soil does the work on its own. The growth is inevitable. You see this imagery and this message seen throughout all of Scripture. In the Old Testament, God consistently reminds his people that it's not you who makes this happen. It's always me. It's by my hand that my will is accomplished. 
Jesus uses this imagery when describing the work of the Holy Spirit. Over uh, in, over in the, the book of John, you have Jesus describing the work of the Spirit, and he compares it to the work of the wind or the presence of the wind when it comes to the new birth. Describing that work, in verse 5 of John chapter 3, we read, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed by what I said to you, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. It's different imagery, but the same picture. It's the Holy Spirit who's at work. It's God's hand that causes the growth here. And again, if, if you have any Jewish background, if you understand the Old Testament, that point would not have been all that shocking, nor would the end result that is painted here have been surprising. For as Jesus says, this, this seed does grow, and eventually it reaches the point of harvest. And describing that in verse 29, he says, when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Again, if you come from a Jewish background, this language of of a future harvest is familiar. It's rich with meaning. You can find it in passages like Joel 3, where that prophet describes the coming day of judgment as the great harvest, when God will, will reap from his people, when God will take his people home. Throughout the Old and New Testament, then you have this imagery and promise of a future day of judgment, a day that is compared and pictured as a day of harvest and Jesus again says the same is still true today the kingdom is coming the kingdom will result in this grand harvest just as you've all been waiting for but but remember it wasn't necessarily that that future prospect with which the disciples would have struggled they knew that was going to happen that's nothing new to their promises the the big question was okay but where is it today Jesus you have claimed the kingdom is present, so, so how are we supposed to see that? And it's to that present growth, that present state of the kingdom, that ultimately Jesus is pointing to in this passage. For again, look at the focus here in verse 27. Speaking of the farmer, he says he goes to bed at night, gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows how he himself does not know. The soil produces the crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. Uh, The vast majority of this short parable, then, is dedicated to the fact that this growth is certain. It is ongoing. It is present, even though you physically cannot see it. The farmer cannot look underneath the soil. The farmer has no idea exactly how successful the crop is until he starts seeing the fruit from it. And in a similar fashion... Jesus is telling his disciples, you don't see it yet, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It's at work. Growth is happening beneath the soil. You just can't can't see it quite yet. You just have to be patient, for, for eventually you will see the growth. Eventually you will understand that my hand is very much at work, that my ministry is as fruitful as I intend it to be. And this message, as obvious as it should be to us, is one that that is so easily forgotten and misunderstood by by all believers. And so very often throughout Scripture, you have the people of God just struggling to believe because they can't see it. You think back to one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, the story of Elijah. This great story of a great prophet of God who 
who was given a, a tremendous victory over the prophets of Baal. That famous event where he calls fire down from the sky and he humiliates the, the wicked rulers and, and he humiliates these false gods and they chase down these idol worshipers and kill them according to the law. But as many of you remember well, following that victory, what happens to Elijah? Well, his life is threatened. And the great change that he'd anticipated didn't happen. And, and so he's left fleeing for his life, convinced, convinced that God doesn't care anymore. Convinced that the covenant is dead. Convinced that he's literally the only one left in all of Israel that loves Yahweh. But in response to his doubt, we have the response of, of God, of Yahweh, in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18 you have these words of Yahweh to this downcast prophet. Speaking of the future in 1 Kings 19, verse 17 and 18, God says, it shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu, shall be put to death. So he's talking about what's going to happen. And one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I, Yahweh, will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. It's fascinating when you read this passage, for it's almost as if Yahweh mentions this in passing to Elijah. Elijah, who had already said, I and I alone and left God, as, as God corrects him, he throws in the fact that, no, Elijah, there's 7,000 others who haven't. 7,000 other faithful followers who've been just as loyal as you. You just didn't see them. Elijah couldn't see them, and so because he couldn't see them, he assumed the covenant was dead, but the covenant was still very much alive. And God reminded him of that. Elijah is not the only man of God, not the only precious follower who struggles with this. And another powerful example in the New Testament, you have the same struggle of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was that great last prophet, who was, who was praised by his character for Jesus himself. And, and yet, John struggled with doubt. For while Jesus was going on about his ministry, John the Baptist was rotting away in prison for standing up for the law of God. John was going to be executed by one of those wicked pagan rulers. And so as John sits in prison and hears of Christ's bewildering message and, and strange ministry, we have this fascinating event in Matthew chapter 11 where, where John the Baptist sends some of his own followers, some of his own supporters and as he sends them, we read this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. When John, while imprisoned, heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Do you hear the desperation in that? John the Baptist is questioning whether or not this really is the Messiah. John the Baptist had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sin of the world, but in prison he doesn't see it. He sees his suffering, and he, he doesn't see the kingdom, and so he, he sends his followers and asks Jesus, are you it? Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, go report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The response is similar to that of Elijah. It's, it's the response and say, go, go tell John what you see. Go tell John of all these prophecies that are being fulfilled. Go remind John, no, I am the Messiah. No, the kingdom really is here. You just don't see it yet. 
John the Baptist struggled with this. Elijah struggled with this. We too can so easily struggle with this. For at times it is hard to see the work of God. It just is. We live in a broken world. And as we struggle in our jobs, as we struggle with our kids, as we struggle in our marriages, at times it's really hard to see how, how God is honestly working this out for the good of those who love him, isn't it? It's hard. And at the root of it, it, it's the same struggle. It's hard to see that the kingdom of God really is present, and yet the constant teaching of Scripture is, no, it's there. You may not see it now in the midst of your struggle, but the kingdom is here. God's rule is being played out, and it's going exactly as Jesus planned it. And so even if we do not see it, we must respond, we must listen carefully, and we must patiently await that growth, knowing even if we cannot see it with our own eyes, that it's all around us. That God is, in fact, at work. And so be patient. And yet even in response to this, it's easy to lose hope. And as we speak of the presence of God's kingdom, it's easy to start, start thinking, well, okay, yeah, God's kingdom is here, but what does that even really mean? And as we hear of this message, it's easy to again lose sight of that future reality. As this world beats us down with one bad day after the other, it's easy to start growing a little cynical with how grand the supposed heaven's going to be. I mean, if the kingdom of God is like this now, is there really that much to look forward to in eternity, honestly? It's a reasonable question to ask. It's no doubt one that would have challenged the disciples in the midst of Jesus' ministry, and yet, as we continue on, we see that Jesus speaks to that as well. For as dark as these times are, as, as hidden as the growth of the kingdom is, the end result is still just as glorious as we could ever imagine. In fact, it is beyond our imagination. And to that end, we see these words of Jesus in verses 30 through 32. There we see Jesus said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? Well, it's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil... Yet when it is sown, it grows up, and it becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so the birds of the air can nest under its shade. When speaking of this future reality of the kingdom, Jesus again picks up on a surprising picture. For if you're trying to build up a big following, this probably isn't the best imagery to say, right? Come join me. I know it looks really pathetic now, but I assure you it's going to get better. That's really what, what Jesus is saying here. The, the beginning is utterly insignificant. And to picture this, he uses this imagery of a mustard seed that he describes as the smallest of all seeds. Now, I do want to note that Jesus isn't literally saying that the mustard seed is the smallest in the world. I've, I've had friends of mine who claim this is an example of where Scripture's wrong. Because physically speaking, there are other smaller seeds. That's not the point here. Jesus is speaking in a parable. This was a popular image in that culture that would have been picked up. Jesus knows there's literally seeds that are smaller. It's not his point. His point is just saying that, that a mustard seed is by itself extremely unimpressive. There's nothing significant about that seed. You would never look at something so tiny and think, okay, that, that could become something significant. No, it's nothing. And Jesus says it's the same thing with the kingdom. It's the same thing what I'm building. What you see now is nothing. It is just a, a tiny shadow of what is yet to come. 
And in saying that, Jesus is saying something that that all of us surely can acknowledge in Scripture. For you could not have a less impressive start to the kingdom of God. Right? I mean, as great as some of Jesus' signs were, there really wasn't a whole lot else in his ministry that, that he had going for him. I mean, physically speaking, we're told that Jesus was not impressive. As a leader, he seemed to fail because he had a big crowd at one point in time and then just scares them all away by talking in parables and and giving really hard messages. So from a worldly standpoint, that's strange. That's tiny. On top of that, the disciples Jesus chose are are not the cream of the crop. You read through the Gospels and they themselves do not hide this fact. They're clueless. Peter's pulling Jesus aside at a point and says, I think you're mistaken, Jesus. Right? This is a common picture of the disciples, uneducated, unimpressive. And looking forward in his ministry, the most impressive, most, most offensive part of all, of course, is the cross. Who starts their kingdom with a brutal form of execution that is intended to humiliate the victim? No one. It makes no sense whatsoever. Speaking to just how illogical and how offensive this beginning is, the late atheist Christopher Hitchens regularly spoke of how comically ludicrous the Christian faith really appears to be. And at one point in time when speaking to how silly it is to believe that the death and burial and resurrection of Christ could be seen as a solution, Christopher Hitchens imagined this this make-believe conversation in heaven. And speaking in the place of God, Christopher Hitchens says, it's as if one day the so-called God said, okay, that's enough. That's enough suffering. It's time to intervene. And the best way to do this is by condemning someone to human sacrifice in the least literate parts of the Middle East. Well, let's not deal with the Chinese, for example, where, where people can read and study evidence and have a civilization. No, no, no. Let's go out to the desert and have a revelation there. To the atheist Christopher Hitchens, this was the most moronic thing you could believe. In fact, he said, this is nonsense and cannot be believed by any thinking person. That's offensive. And yet it's exactly what Paul says himself in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? I mean, Paul said this long before Christopher Hitchens imagined it in his own mind. Uh, Paul says the cross is utter foolishness to the Greek. It is utterly offensive to the Jew for it. It was blasphemy in their minds. At face value, the beginning of the kingdom is less than insignificant. It's nothing. And yet, as Jesus promises, the end result is shockingly grand. Jesus, again, picking up on the imagery of the mustard seed, says, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. It forms large branches so the birds in the air can nest under its shade. The mustard plant can grow up to to 15 feet. And so going from some millimeter wide seed to to a shrub that is 15 feet in height is significant. And Jesus says the same thing is true For the kingdom and the disciples, no doubt, could not fathom just how grand of an image Jesus was speaking of. For when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he's not just speaking of of something that, that grows up and is somewhat big compared to other things. He's speaking of something that is beyond our imagination. And you see this imagery spoken of later in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, describing just how grand this kingdom ultimately is. There John the Apostle sees this imagery in Revelation 7. 
verse 9. He says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on throne in the Lamb. Later on in the passage, you have the idea that there's no more hunger, there's no more thirst, there's, there's no shame, there's no sin, there's no death. The imagery of the kingdom here is both shockingly grand in its size, for it is from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and shockingly grand in its experience. It is glory. And, and it is not hard to, to assume that the disciples here, again, could have no, no real appreciation of what Jesus is saying here. For at this point in time, Christianity seems to have failed miserably, and yet we benefit from church history until we can see a, a glimpse of just how true the shocking growth of the kingdom is. Consider these statistics from Larry Hurtado's book, Destroyer of the Gods, when he speaks of the shocking growth. As of 40 AD, it was estimated there were approximately 1,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. In 60 years' time, 100 AD, it was estimated there were up to 10,000 believers. In 200 AD, 200,000 believers. And by 300 AD, it is estimated that there were upwards of 6 million Christians. And this is all before Constantine took power, right? This is all before it became the official religion of Rome. This was purely organic growth of Christianity, a religion that was despised and utterly foolish in its inception. A religion that should have driven every Jew away, and yet how many Jews convert the moment of the resurrection? Multitudes embrace something that would have been blasphemous to them a, a second before. How many Roman citizens in great cities like Corinth and Rome would have embraced this message that would have seemed utter foolishness just a second before? Multitudes. Multitudes, within a short amount of time, are declaring, no, Jesus was right. He's the true king. This isn't anything. This is the Roman Empire. It's pathetic. The real kingdom belongs to God. And so the multitudes were swearing their allegiance to a crucified Messiah. They were doing so because they knew he was resurrected, that he was it. What a glorious truth, and yet again, one that we so easily lose sight of. We sit in our homes today, and we, we bemoan the state of the church in America, and understandably so at times. But the fact is, the kingdom is still growing rapidly all around us. You look over at countries like Iran, China, places that, that would have seemed untouchable by the gospel just years ago, and, and yet now multitudes in these countries are coming to Christ. The church is thriving. The kingdom is growing. It is doing exactly that which Christ guaranteed. And even that is just a glimmer of what lies ahead. Even that is child's play compared to the size, to the mag magnitude, the magnificence of the kingdom of which Jesus speaks. And so as hard as it is to believe at times as believers, as hard as it is to grasp, we must daily remind ourselves, while we cannot see it yet, the kingdom is growing, and while we cannot fathom how grand it will be in the end, it will be beyond compare. And so we must respond with great expectation, with great eagerness, with great joy, for we know that that is the certain end to which we are headed. That is the kingdom. That is the image that Jesus paints for us in these parables. And having painted this picture, 
Mark then returns to us to this somewhat anticlimactic but precious picture of what the ministry then continued to be. For in verse 33 and 34, we read, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them. So far as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. As the passage closed, we see, as glorious and as grand as these truths are, the fact is, it still requires us to listen closely. The fact was that these disciples were still living on earth. They were still living in the presence of Jesus. And so, day in and day out, though they could not fully understand it, they sat beside Jesus and they listened intently to what he was saying. Day in and day out, they listened intently. And just as Jesus promised, he would pull them aside and he would explain to the disciples, this is what this means. Here's what this promise means. Here's what this picture means. Day in and day out they did this, and by the grace of the Holy Spirit, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we see the radical change that takes place in the disciples, for they too then become the teachers, speaking of the glorious kingdom in the midst of a glorious, difficult life. And we too must follow in that example. We too must understand the present and future aspects of the kingdom. We must rejoice in that. We must look forward to it. We must be patient, and we must press on daily. For as the Apostle Paul says, as difficult as this life is, the sufferings of this present life are nothing to be compared to the glory that is yet to be revealed. This is the constant image that is to be set before our eyes. And as cryptic and as hidden as it might sound here in Mark 4, praise be to God for the fact that we do know it to be true. We can know it to be true through history, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and through the Holy Spirit who continues to reveal these things to us daily. Let us find great comfort in that. Let us find the motivation that we need. As unbelievers, if you're here this morning, I know so much of this is still cryptic. And I know it's tempting as an unbeliever to to look for a quick fix to all the struggles around us. And I can appreciate that desire. But Jesus does not offer a quick fix in Mark 4. And so the application to these parables is, you unbelievers, be dumbstruck by the claims of Christ. Sit silently at the incredible promise Christ offers. Even more so, be amazed by its fulfillment. Honestly, look at church history. Honestly, look at the promises as they've been fulfilled and see that that Jesus was not just speaking hypothetically. These, These were legitimate promises and they have been fulfilled and they will be fulfilled in response to that. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. And unbelievers, you either kneel before your king at this moment in life or you kneel before him in judgment and be cast down into his wrath for all eternity. There is no escaping his kingdom and his reign. My brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be amazed by Christ. Let us be renewed in our daily patience, renewed in our anticipation, and let us daily sit at the feet of our Savior, read his word, be inspired, and go out presenting this kingdom to the dying world around us that so desperately needs to hear it. If any of you have any questions about any of this, feel free to stay with us afterwards. There'll be some elders up front that'll be happy to pray for you, talk to you about anything. I'll be out in the foyer. That being said, let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, God, there are truths here that are still beyond our understanding. We still see dimly through the glass. And we so desperately long to see it clearly, God. 
We so desperately long for that day when our faith will be made sight finally. Christ, we pray that you make that day today. But God, even as we see dimly at this moment, God, might we find joy in it. Might we see the beauty of you. Might we see the glory of the kingdom. Holy Spirit, cause us to see it more clearly. Cause us to grow in that understanding daily. For unbelievers who are here, God, I pray for their salvation. I pray they respond wisely, Lord. Holy Spirit, open their eyes so they can see the truth. Give them ears to hear so they can hear these glorious truths of the kingdom and bring them to a saving faith. We love you, God, and we praise you, Jesus, for you are our king. We eagerly anticipate the day in which you will return and we will stand face to face before you, but we pray until that day we might diligently do your will. We might accomplish the work you've set before us. Might we be proper ambassadors of the kingdom, knowing that the kingdom is here and the kingdom is yet to come. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.